commit to pray over those this week. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 27, chapter 27, and we'll be looking at Rebecca's deception uh, this morning. This summer, I read uh, the amazing account of CIA Chief of Operations and Chief of Disguise, Tony and Jonah Mendez, uh, entitled The Moscow Rules. And in this book, the Mendezes recount the dangerous cat and mouse game of working under the noses of KGB operatives in Moscow. During the heart of the Cold War, the CIA operated out of the American embassy and um, workers there could never leave. They could never go out into the city without picking up a KGB tail. Another vehicle would pull in behind and follow them around and observe them. So out of necessity then, the workers came up with these ingenious ways to escape observation, to slip out, sometimes only for an instant and other times for hours. And one couple that um, often worked outside of the compound always had their large sleepy dog in the back seat. And so after dozens of times through the gate, through the security screening, with the same old sleepy dog always in the back seat, it was no problem then to leave the real dog behind one day and leave an agent in the back seat in a crude dog suit. It wouldn't have passed a thorough inspection, but it didn't have to. It had to work at a glance, and it did. It was all they needed to get an agent in or out unobserved. My favorite deception in, this, in the uh, book came by way of a fake birthday cake. This one's really uh, like a James Bond story. A, a pair left the embassy compound in a car with a large birthday cake on the lap of the man in the passenger seat. And as the car left the gate, a KGB vehicle slipped in behind them, watching them carefully. And so a few minutes into the drive, they utilized a move that they had rehearsed dozens of times. The Americans would make two right turns in quick succession. And this would cause their KGB friends to lose sight of them just for a moment. And in that moment, the passenger would jump out of the car while pressing a button on the fake birthday cake and a mannequin would spring out of this cake, complete with a wig and a hat and a jacket and the whole get up. And so when the KGB car came around the second corner and reacquired their uh, their observation of the car with the Americans in it, they saw exactly what they expected to see. Two silhouettes driving along in the car ahead, just trundling along in the Moscow streets, and they were never any wiser that an agent had left that car. In Genesis 27, we witness a similar kind of deception to that. Isaac, advanced in his age and without sight, expects to bless a son. And he does. He expected to eat the kind of meal that his son would prepare for him, and he did. He expected to smell the odor of his son's garments and to feel the hairiness of his son's hands or arms, and he did. And all of these details were exactly as they should have been, but Isaac was deceived. Instead of blessing Esau, his favorite son, he instead blessed Jacob, Rebekah's favored, the heel catcher and the trickster the younger brother, the man who dwelt in tents. You may remember back in April, we, uh, we visited Rebecca and Isaac in Genesis 25, where Rebecca is at first barren, and then she's expecting, and her pregnancy uh, is a great hardship, and she inquires of the Lord, and he speaks to her. He says, two nations are struggling in your womb, 
they're going to be divided. One is stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And this older serving the younger is not the normal way of things. And it signified all kinds of challenges and struggle to come. We learn two more important things in chapter 25 that I just want to point out as a context for where we are today. First, uh, at the end of chapter 25, Isaac and Rebekah show terrible favoritism towards their sons. We read uh, in verses 27 and 28 of that chapter, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The other thing we learn is that Jacob had his sights set on his brother from before the time of their birth. They struggled together in the womb. Jacob was called a heel grabber, a a tricker, a trickster, a supplanter at the time of the twins' delivery. Um, And and then at the close of 25, uh, chapter 25, Jacob seizes the opportunity to gain the upper hand in the story that we're all very familiar with where um, Esau and Jacob exchanged the birthright. Esau has come in from the field exhausted, and he begs his brother for some some of the stew that he has. And Jacob asks an unimaginable price for lentil stew. I don't know anyone who just loves lentil stew, much less sell their birthright for it. But Esau demands this stew, and so Jacob says, sure, sell me your birthright. And Esau is infuriated, but he agrees by saying, what good to me is the birthright if I'm dead? And at that one, very min- that one very moment, that instant, we see laid before us what God already knew, that Jacob prized the birthright above all else, and his pursuit of it is just shameless. I got this little bowl of porridge here, basically. Sell me your birthright. That, that's just borderline wicked. Just how could you do that to your own brother? But he did it. He was shameless in his pursuit of it. Esau, on the other hand, does not treasure the birthright. He doesn't even treasure it more than stew. And so he shows himself unworthy in that exchange. And Genesis really uh, leaves no doubt of that. And that chapter 25 ends with, thus Esau despised his birthright. Despised means to be counted low, to, to not be treasured, to not be considered worth very much. And the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament would later uh, write, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So Hebrews 12, by the way, is where that quote is. It tells us there's something spiritual about this. There's more than just the material part of the birthright. This was an unholy thing for uh, Esau to do. And for many of us, it's, it's hard to imagine such favoritism among the parents and such desperate content, contempt among the siblings. But this would be a good place for me to remind us that we're not, we're dealing with narrative history here. And that's going to be important in a couple of ways today. When we read from the narrative story of of Genesis in many places, Genesis is just telling us what happened. It's not really making moral qualifications. It's not necessarily revealing to us, did God find this behavior acceptable or did he not? Sometimes that's silent. We don't hear that portion and we have to, um, we have to come to that conclusion on our own. So 
as we read through this and we see the imperfections of the sons, the parents, others in the story, we need to understand we're not reading this so we can imitate them. <laughs> not, in, not in that way. We're not reading this so that we would imitate these characters, but that we would see how much they need a Savior. That we would see how God's grace is operating behind the scenes of what is going on. And so that's important for us uh, to uh, remember. Isaac and Rebecca, they're not getting the Parents of the Year award, and these characters are for us to learn from but not to imitate. They're flawed characters, and we see that the boys are flawed as well. And with all of this in mind, we finally come to the time of Isaac's blessing. And so what I want to do is break this rather large passage into three scenes, uh, three separate scenes for us to just kind of take, um, to kind of compartmentalize our thoughts, and we'll work through these three scenes. And this will be stylistically a little different uh, preaching for us this morning. We're going to sort of make our conclusions and our main points uh, near the end of the sermon. There's a lot of story here that we need to work through and make observations, and we'll come to our points uh, more at the end. So scene one, I've labeled in your notes, if you're following along, and I hope you are, the first scene is verses one through 17, and I've called it No Moral Compass. And to be clear, I don't mean that everyone in the story just, you know, couldn't care less about ethics or morality. In fact, I think most of what happens in this first scene comes about because the individuals in this family are so very concerned with what is right and wrong. But as we see so often in history, they're willing to define what's wrong and what's right by their own subjective standards. So maybe it's not so accurate that they have no compass, it's just that their compass doesn't point north. Or at least it's not pointing to what God says is north. And so I think if we're honest, we can relate to this a little bit. When things are easy, it's pretty easy to follow follow God. When our path is clear, when our decisions are straightforward, when there's plenty of what's needed, basically anytime we're not facing a crisis, well, of course, we're able to say, I'm trusting the Lord, I'm waiting on Him. Yes, all your needs are met. Of course you are. But when we are facing a crisis, when we are facing a challenge, when things are difficult and the way is not clear, that's when we start to shift some of our trust and some of our reliance back from God to ourselves. We feel like somebody needs to do something. I, I just need to do something. I need to take matters into my own hands. And that's really where we find the family of Isaac here. God revealed back in chapter 25 this unthinkable and unexplainable puzzle that they have been dwelling on for some time, that the, the, the younger is going to be um, the chosen one and that the older will serve the younger. And they would have been pondering this for years and years and years. Colin and I were talking about this morning about how sometimes our coloring pages, um, our, our mentality, our vision of what these stories look like kind of sways us a little bit. It's reckoned that Isaac is 130 some odd years old at the time of the blessing, and that the boys, as we say boys, the twin sons, Jacob and Esau, are like 70-something years old. And so sometimes we get this idea that these are still young people. They've been thinking about this for a long time. They've been living with this, how is it going to come to pass that the, that the younger uh, will, be, will be the chosen one? How, uh, the, the inheritance will go to him. How can this be? And so um, what they want to know how they're going to see this fleshed out. Um, and when we compound this with the favoritism of the parents, right, each has their favorite, and the quarrel and the exchange of the birthright between the sons, there's a lot here. This is a, 
this is, this is quite a spaghetti tangle that, that, that has been weaved here for this family uh, to figure out. And what causes this long wait to be turned into a decisive action, we see in verses 1 and 2. Isaac believes he's going to die. He says to Esau, go and hunt. Listen, I don't know the number of my days. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be alive, so it's time for me to pass this blessing on. And we'll come back to that uh, in a little bit. But so the crisis of the moment, right? Do something. I've got to bring it about somehow. That's the crisis of the moment. It's that this tangled prophecy has not yet been unraveled and the blessing has not been passed down, but Isaac fears his death is imminent. So he's going to take matters into his own hands and he is, by golly, going to bless Esau, not Jacob. So it's important for us to remember, as we've said before, the characters in this patriarchal history of, of Israel, they're sinners despite their status. They're sinners despite their status. So Isaac The son of Abraham and the father of Jacob is just going to do what he thinks is right. That's what he's going to do. But it's the right that he judges in his own eyes. And Genesis 25 tells us that Isaac loved Esau because he was the hunter. And we might imagine Isaac saying to himself, nothing's happened yet. We've been waiting and I'm getting too old and I could die at any time now. And it's time to pass this blessing down and it just, it can't go to Jacob He's crafty and, and, and cunning and a thinker, and he's, he dwells in the tents, and he's, he's not like Esau. Esau's the one. He's the man's man. He's the hunter. He's the man of the field. Clearly, he's the one. And if that's true, if that's the thinking of Isaac, his judgment would be a lot like that of Samuel and his party before Jesse in 1 Samuel 16 when they came to anoint a king, and they took one look at Eliab and said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But what did God say? God doesn't see as man sees, right? And so judging on our own, judging by our own standard, we're going to see over and over again is just not, not the thing to do. Now we know that when Rebecca hears what Isaac said to Esau, she too springs into action. And again, she's doing what she thinks is right. No, 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 no. The prophecy said this blessing wouldn't go to Esau. It would go to Jacob. I've got to do something. I'm not going to let Isaac mess this up. So she takes matters into her own hands. She thinks that she's doing what's right. She can't let that blessing go to Esau. And so she brings about uh, a change on her own terms and in her own timing. The end justifies the means is the thinking, isn't it? And so the intentions of the members of this family are really bewildering. It's sort of all over the map. But just keep this in mind because it's absolutely critical. Everyone is doing exactly what they want to do. Isaac wants to bless Esau. Rebecca wants to deceive her husband so he'll bless Jacob. But nobody's making them do anything. They are making their own decisions here. Isaac intends to bless the wrong son. Esau intends to receive the blessing despite having sold his right to it. Rebecca intends to deceive her husband into a different outcome. And Jacob? Jacob's only objection is that he's not hairy enough. I mean, can you imagine, wouldn't it be something if we saw Jacob's response? Mom, under no circumstances will we do such a thing. We cannot do this wicked thing to Isaac. That's not, that's not what we see. Mom, this is never going to work. <laughs> I'm not hairy enough. He's never going to fall for this. You better come up with something better, right? And so there's no real 
moral objection to this is just, no, it's not going to work. If you've ever wondered where the heel grabber trait in Jacob comes, where does Jacob get this trait to be a trickster? Look no further than Rebecca's planning and execution here. This is verses 8 through 17. Just look at all the plates Rebecca has spinning here. She's got this one going and this one over here going and this one over here going. She has got to prepare a meal. It's got to be sufficient to fool Isaac. She's got to to retrieve clothes from her one son to give to the other son. She's got to drape him arm and neck with goat skins, you know, and they can't smell like a goat skin. Like all this has to work out in short enough time to beat Esau back. That's the remarkable part. All of this and at breakneck speed that we've got to do this quickly um, before, I don't know how much time it takes Esau to go to the field and hunt and clean and prepare game, but however long it is, that's how much time they have. The clock is ticking and Rebecca has got them all going. This is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it, and this is how we're going to handle those objections. So sure, Isaac is blind, but this is a disguise worthy of the CIA and the KGB. You're going to look like him. You're going to feel like him. You're going to smell like him. We got this down. And so once they're all ready in verse 17, and you can almost picture this, right? She comes over. She puts the meal in his hand. She gives him the meal and the bread, and off he goes. Go on in to see your father. And so in he goes to see Isaac. And that brings us to the second scene, verses 18 through 29, which I've called blessing the right wrong son. When Jacob enters Isaac's dwelling, Isaac begins questioning his identity. That might seem a little strange, but I think we should sort of expect that from a man who uh, over recent years or recent times has gone gradually blind. He has to verify everything. And so um, it really is amazing actually how close he comes to unraveling this little plot. We see a couple of times in the story how close he comes to realizing what's going on. But he repeatedly attempts to verify his son's identity. And the question would be, why would he do that? I I would argue that he knows the oracle of the Lord concerning his offspring. He knows what was said. He likely knows that the birthright was exchanged. Uh, Esau mentions it later in the story that he's deceived me these two times. And so I think it was known in the family that this, that this happened, this, the boys had exchanged the birthright. But at the very least, he knows that the blessing is contested. He knows and he has lived with and watched Jacob these 70 some odd years. And besides all that, Esau may not know the value of the birthright, but Jacob definitely knows um, and Isaac definitely knows. And the blessing will mean everything when it's given. Isaac has to give it to who he believes is the right son because nothing could be more important than this blessing that he's going to hand down. John MacArthur notes in his commentary that Isaac's first question, which we see in verse 20, his first, his first question is the final chance for Jacob to end the charade, right? Isaac says, how is it that you've come back so quickly? How have you gone and gotten your gear together and made the trip down to the hunting camp and killed, killed the game, and cleaned it, and cooked it, and prepared, and you're already back here? And this really is where we see Jacob's level of commitment. I mentioned the word shameless before, and we really see that operating now. Instead of taking this last opportunity to get out, Jacob really doubles down. And look at the doozy that he says to his father Isaac. He even invokes the Lord's name to protect this lie. Oh, the Lord bless me, Father. How is it that you win and you prepared game this quickly? Oh, the Lord was good to me. Really? 
A lie sustains a lie. A little lie to sustain a bigger one. Have you, have you ever been there? Have you ever been caught in a web of your own sin, trying to cover your own tracks, telling one lie to sustain a previous one? That is such a hopeless enterprise, isn't it? It's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And, and you know you are going to be found out. That is the way of, um, that is the way of the Lord. He will, bring, he will bring it about that you will be found out. And so how better to be found out because of your own integrity? Even if it's late integrity, I confess, I, I told a lie. It was wrong of me. I repent. How much better is that than being found to be dishonest or found to be a liar um, later on? And so Jacob could have trusted the Lord and stopped all of this, but he refused. He didn't. And so Isaac tells Jacob to come closer so he can feel him. That's verse 21. And Isaac even says in verse 22, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He is that close. The voice is Jacob's voice, but the the hands are the hands of Esau. So verse 23 says, in the end, um, the deception wins out and he doesn't recognize Jacob. And so after asking him yet again and Jacob lying yet again, Isaac eats the food and smells the smell of Esau's garments and is satisfied that the son in front of him really is Esau. Well, I want to talk about the blessing that's given now because this really is a remarkable part of the story. What is this blessing that Isaac is going to give? Why is it such an important thing? The inheritance blessing is effectively all of God's promises to Abraham. Everything God ever promised to Abraham is being passed down to the next generation. So we're not just talking about material things. If, if calling this the inheritance, this blessing that's about to happen, if, if calling it the inheritance makes you call to mind material things, there will be material parts of this blessing, but don't let that sway your understanding. We are talking about the promises of God that are weighty. We're going to look at them, but this is what's being uh, this is what's being handed down. Would you do a little page turning with me? Uh, let's go back to Genesis 12. If you'll flip back just a couple of chapters to Genesis 12, we're going to look at uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, we see this first calling of Abram. And God says, The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then this continued on or was developed further a few more pages forward to Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, and really we won't read this whole uh, section, but I would just mention here when God again reiterates this blessing, he says at the beginning, your reward is going to be very great. Uh, I'll bless you. I'll make you great. Verse 1. Verse 5, I'm going to make your offspring like the stars. He promised him the land that would become Israel. That's verse 7. I'm going to give you all this land that currently belongs to all these other people. I'm going to give that to you. He even tells him about the captivity of Israel uh, down to Egypt, verse 13 through 16. 
And of course, we know in greater fullness through our lens, uh, through uh, the New Testament and through history, uh, we, we see that the significance of the blessing that would come to all the earth through uh, Abraham's seed is the Messiah who's going to come and deliver us from our sins. And it doesn't stop with Abraham because it wasn't all fulfilled with Abraham. So where does it go? It goes to Isaac. And you can see that in Genesis 26. Genesis 26, verses 3 and 4. There's a famine that has come, and the Lord tells Isaac not to go down to Egypt because God is going to do what? He says, well, all all these same things. In Genesis 26, 3 and 4, God now says to Isaac, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you and your offspring all these lands. I'm going to fulfill the promises that I made to Abraham, your father, and that in Isaac's offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so that's so important. We touched on this a little bit back in April. The problem with Abraham's story is that there's no heir. How is God going to be faithful to fulfill all these promises when there's no heir? And once again, what do we see people do, specifically Abraham? I I need to do something. I need to make something happen, right? All this time's gone by and God's promise isn't yet fulfilled. I need to I need to do something. I need to bring it back about in my own strength, in my own wisdom. It never works out well, does it? And so we see that in, in Abraham's story. The problem is that there's no heir. The problem in Isaac's story now is that there are two heirs. Two possibilities. Well, we got our answer if the Hebrews asked, well, can God be proven faithful when there's no heir? Yes, he can. He gives Isaac. He gives laughter. Can he be found faithful? Can the promise still come true when there are two sons? What do we do now? Well, we thought it was going to work that the older son would receive the inheritance. And then God said that that's not going to happen. And so who is it that's going to choose? Who is it that's going to decide which son among the two? Which line is going to to fulfill these promises of Abraham to the whole world? We already know the answer to that. God's going to choose. Right? But... These characters in the story are having to work all of this out. And so the promise from God to Abraham and then to Isaac is an inheritance because they're certain, but they're not yet fulfilled. And so Isaac is now doing exactly what he wants to do and thinking that he's choosing Esau. Unwittingly, he's passing the blessing on to Jacob. So let's look at the text of the blessing, which begins in verse 28, back in chapter 27. If we look at the blessing, look at, look at what is offered here. It's the provision of of heaven and earth, the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. Just really beautiful Hebrew um, uh, language there. Plenty of both grain and wine. So there are material blessings to be had. But then look look at the power and authority that's given. In verse 29, peoples and nations will serve you. Peoples and nations will serve you. And, And then still in verse 29, he's made Lord over his brothers and his family. And this is the part of the blessing that would indicate that the line from which the Messiah would eventually come is going to come from this one who is being blessed. And then blessing and curses for those who bless and curse him. That's, that's an echo, right? That's a repeat of the promise that was made to Abram and then, and then to Isaac, right? All, I'm, I'm going to bless you that you may be a blessing and all the, all the nations of the earth will, will be blessed uh, from, from you. And he who blesses you, I will bless. And he who curses you, I will curse. So what a remarkable blessing that is given here. And so this deception holds at least long enough for it to to work out. 
And it's Jacob that is chosen. It's Jacob who is blessed by Isaac. And this is the son through which God is going to fulfill his covenant to Abraham. And that means the only character left to deal with now is poor Esau. What is going to happen to Esau? So scene three, now Jacob leaves the presence of Isaac having received the blessing and Esau is coming uh, in. And we know what happens next. It's like watching a train wreck in slow motion. You, you can see it coming, but you can't look away. In verse 30, we learn that Jacob's barely gotten out of there when Esau comes bebopping in with a delicious meal for his father. And he says in so many words, I'm here, dad, and I'm ready for the blessing. And boy, is he in for a surprise. He says, bless me, father. And Isaac asks, who are you? And you can imagine the sinking feeling in Isaac's chest as he realizes he's been duped. And when Esau says, it's me, your son, your firstborn, Esau, and Isaac trembles violently. The Hebrew here is absolutely intense. It, it translates literally into something along the lines of, he trembled, Isaac, trembling greatly unto abundance. <laughs> it's very strong. He was shaking with rage. And he also asks, who was it then who came before, right? And I think this is demonstrating his anger as much as the tremors. He's asking this question to which both parties, there can only be one answer, right? Everybody knows who was it that came before. There's only one that it could be. It's Jacob, the heel grabber, right? And so notice how verse 33 concludes, I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. And so Isaac is infuriated I think that's another reason why we can say with some confidence that he knew he was trying to bring about this blessing for the wrong son, right in his eyes, right according to his judgment, but not what God had said. And Isaac's reaction moves from this trembling rage to the realization that despite his effort, he could not change what God had ordained. He could not do that. And so he moved from anger and yielded an unhappy acceptance. We see that there in verse 33. Yes, he will be blessed. Right? He doesn't say, call him back in here and let's sort this. That. It's done. What God had ordained from before is now complete. He's been blessed. And Esau, well, our final verses for today show us Esau grasping at straws. His first request in verse 34 is to say, well, just... Well, just bless me too. Just, just bless me as well. And I think that really appeals to our modern sort of Western sensibilities. It, yeah, just, just bless Esau too. He's your son too. Yeah, of course, bless Jacob, but just bless Esau too. What's, what's the big deal? He can't do that because all of this is the consequence of Esau despising his birthright back in Genesis 25. I, you know, I don't know how long it's been since you maybe seen that text, but there's... There's this interesting way that it ends. It's just, Esau just gets up and goes on his way. It's very anticlimactic. You know, this is the part with the, with the lentil stew, right? And sell me your birthright. What good to me is the birthright unless I'm dead? So Jacob forks over the stew. Esau eats and gets up and leaves. And we're thinking, that's it? Where's the, shouldn't there, shouldn't there be a judgment? Or a, isn't this bad? What, what's going to happen? Why, why doesn't it play out in front of us? It's playing out now. It's playing out much, much later in life. And so um, Esau rose and went his way, and, and, and we think that was all to the story. But now we see, 
Now we see Esau thinking highly of the blessing and the birthright. Oh, now he treasures it. It's far too late. It's far too late. And the writer of Hebrews, um, again from that passage that I, that I mentioned earlier in Hebrews 12, it concludes this way. For you know that afterward, when he, Esau, desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Why no chance to repent? It was too late. It was too late. Now I see, now I understand the blessing. I want the blessing now. I'm sorry, son, it's it's too late. You sold it. You've given it away. You, You didn't prize it. You counted it lowly and now that's come back. It's come back to your story now. And so we see Esau seeking it with tears in verses 36 and 37. Haven't you spared anything for me? Haven't you saved some blessing that I could have? And look what Isaac says. No, I've given him everything. I've made him Lord over you. And I've sustained him. I've given him everything. And he says, what what more can I do for you? I think that's an important important thing for us to to think about. You know, both, both sons can be blessed in the sense that that God is going to do gracious things to them. And, and we're going to learn more about the story of Esau as we, as we continue on in Genesis. And there are blessings in his life, certainly. So it's not that there's no blessing that's coming, but by comparison to what he's lost, there's nothing. There's nothing that can compare to losing the birthright, losing the inheritance, losing the blessing, the promises of Abraham being passed down. Nothing can compare. And he may fully understand that now, finally, but it's too late. And so it's no wonder that we see him lift up his voice and weep. So why not bless both sons? Well, both can be blessed, but only one can be the heir. Only one can receive those promises to Abraham. So that takes us to the end of the story, but we have some important things to talk about, don't we? It raises difficult questions. So I would encourage you to think hard with me for just our final moments together. If Isaac tried to bless Esau in an attempt to change what God had willed, and because he was deceived in so doing, he blessed Jacob, which is what God wanted anyway, does that make Isaac's actions any less sinful? Is he off the hook somehow because in doing what he planned to do that was wrong, it actually wound up being right? No, of course not. If you try to go against what God has revealed as his will, there will absolutely be consequences. It it doesn't matter that God's will will ultimately come to pass anyway. We know it always does. But if we try to go against it, we will face the consequences. And we're going to talk about those consequences in just a minute. They are plentiful. And you could no more thwart God's plan in your efforts than put out the sun. It's not going to happen. And so we see that in the character of Isaac here. Isaac was prideful. He was unfaithful in his actions here. And God still brought about what he wanted to have happen. Well, then that would raise the question about Rebecca. What about Rebecca and Jacob here? Since their efforts brought about the result that God had ordained, are they in the clear? Again, the end justifies the means. We know Jacob has to wind up with the blessing, so how about Jacob and Rebekah? Do they get off now because they intervened and saved God's plan from Isaac? 
what? Do we seriously expect God to bless a faithless effort packed full of deception and lies built entirely upon human wisdom and ability? What? Are we to bring about his will in our own power while thoroughly dishonoring him? That can't be. God's never going to smile on those types of attempts, is he? What about this one? This one kind of hurts the brain a little bit. Did all of this have to happen? Did all of this have to happen the way it unfolded here in the text? Is this what God had in mind when he said from the beginning that the older would serve the younger? Did he not just know it was going to happen? Did he make it happen? Did he ordain it to happen? And if all of this sin that we've, and we've just established, right? No, Isaac's still in sin. Rebecca's still in sin. Jacob's still in sin. They're all sinners. Esau, he's going to receive the blessing even though he knew he sold it. They're, they're, all sin, they're all acting in their sin. What do we do with that? Oh, praise God for his grace. What do we do with that? And, but if that's the case, if they are all sinners, and they are, but it all had to take place to bring about what God said was going to happen, is it fair for God to punish the sinners who sin in order that his will might be ordained? And why are we talking about this right now, Brother Jared? <laughs> Well, because we're about to come to Romans 9, where we read a very important passage, and I'm going to read it for you. Romans 9, verses 10 through 16, where Paul says this, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, no difference there, one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we've just had a clinic on human will and exertion trying to thwart what God wanted to do. And you can't do it. We can't thwart it. And yet, as Paul points out there in Romans 9, you can never point the finger at God and say, it wasn't fair. He gets to choose. That's why he's God. So no, nothing in the scripture tells us that our choices and decisions or actions are fated or deterministic. We make that intellectual leap on our own. What the scripture does say, on the other hand, is it holds up these two truths in a theological tension and it never resolves them for us. It just presents them that first, everyone does what they choose or want to do of their own free will and they're held responsible for those choices. And at the same time, God's will is never threatened by our actions. That's shown through and through and through the pages of Scripture. Abraham tries to produce his own heir. Joseph brothers try to get rid of him and sell him into slavery. Moses strikes the rock. David takes Bathsheba. We could go on and on, even to go to the cross. Who killed Jesus? Did it have to happen? Did God make them kill him? It's the same question over and over again. And so we would do really well to remember today's perfect illustration of this truth. 
God said that Jacob would be the chosen heir, but he didn't reveal how he was going to do it. And we no longer get to know. The patriarchal family here, Isaac's family, never gives us the chance to find out because they act in their own wisdom and strength. Instead of waiting on God, they try to rescue him. Instead of admitting their need for rescue, they are wrong in all their actions. And if we look at the consequences, I mentioned this earlier, Esau is enraged and threatens to kill Jacob. Jacob is sent away to Laban to take a wife. Esau provokes his parents when he learns that taking a Canaanite wife is something they wouldn't like. Oh, well, I'll go and do that then. And that causes all kinds of of further issues. And Jacob never sees Rebecca, his mother, alive again. Consequences all over the place because they tried to fix God's plan. And do you know what I think the real kicker is in all this? The real point that we sometimes just miss in the story Do you remember what the catalyst was that drove this this family of the patriarchs into action? Do you remember they had waited and waited and pondered this puzzle? How is God going to bring this about? But we got to do something. What was that catalyst? Isaac said, I'm old now and I'm going to die. You know what's amazing? He was wrong. He was wrong. They didn't have to do any of this. Isaac lived something like another 43 years after this. He was wrong. And we don't know. Other than this is what happened. We see the sin. We see the consequences. And those are real. And we see that God's will could not be thwarted. And that was real as well. Isaac and his family, they didn't need to help God. They needed to trust him. And that was the thing that they could not bring themselves to do. So, What are we to do with these truths and how do we apply them very quickly? I think our application is very simple. The sovereign will of God is always accomplished. What God has said he will do, he will be faithful to do. He has sworn and he will not change. His will is always accomplished. Secondly, we should not try to bring it about on our own. You don't need to rescue God. We're the ones who need rescue. We don't have to rescue his plan. We need to obey his revealed will. We don't want to pull and an end justifies the means. Remember Isaiah 55? Anyone remember that off the top of your heads? My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. They're much higher. You're not going to accomplish it in your own power and your own reckoning. And finally, we are always held accountable for our actions. Do not think that because something good came out of your sin, that it justifies your sin. Your sin is never justified by anyone but Christ. So we remember, they're sinners in need of a Savior. We are sinners in need of a Savior. What will you do with the consequences of your actions? We've seen how in this story the consequences go on and on and on. And eventually the Savior comes through this broken family the promised one who would pay for sin with his life. We need that. We too, just like how many of us all along the story, we can relate to, yes, I, I, I sometimes try to bring it about. I, I sometimes try to rescue the plan. I sometimes, when things are hard, I trust God less instead of trusting him more. We need to repent of those things. The answer to the puzzle that Isaac and his family faced is the same answer to the puzzles that we face. It's what God provided to us. It's Jesus. So 
I would invite you, if there are needs on your heart this morning, if you've never responded to the gospel, you can come. I'm going to invite the praise team to come up. And I'm going to lead us in prayer. I'll be at the front. And if you've thought about these things this morning and you've seen places in your heart, in your life, where you've not trusted God, you've tried to rescue His plan, you want to talk about that, you want to pray about that, we can do that. If you've never come to faith in Christ, come to saving knowledge of Him, you can come. Today's the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story from your word, this powerful, uh, powerful truths that are, um, that are contained in it about your will and about trusting you. Lord, I would pray that as we conclude our service today, we would take these, these things, these thoughts that admittedly they're heavy, they're hard things to think about, but that we would, we would apply them to our own lives and see our need not to bail out your plan. Lord, but to cast ourselves on your plan and rely on you. So Lord, may you move during this commitment time. We thank you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.